You can go ahead and be seated. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take those out with me. And if you happen to pick one up on, on your way in, again, that's your core guide. You can take notes on the front, and there's uh, devotionals on the inside um, that will carry you through the week. And then one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, in the prayer corner last week and today, there's just a little prayer request to our denomination on a quadrennial basis, so every four years, uh, we have something called a, a general assembly where... Uh, People from, that are part of our church from across the globe uh, gather. Uh, they're in Indianapolis, Indiana. And so this past week, um, uh, Karen Duranzo, who leads our missions effort here, and Pastor Trent uh, were representatives of, of uh, our district. Uh, and so they were able to travel back to Indianapolis and participate in a missions convention and our Nazarene Youth Organization, and, and this week is kind of the, the, the general business of the church, the attention turns to the general business of the church, and so th there's some different ways that you can pray over that set of meetings, and, and just this morning, they, they concluded uh, a little bit ago, they're plus three hours from here, but um, I don't know, 20,000 Nazarenes from around the globe uh, gathered for uh, worship, and uh, I understand it was quite uh, a powerful gathering. Uh, anytime that you serve communion to 20,000 people, that's pretty good, right? Um, <clears throat> but we gather in this place uh, as an extension of that global church, and uh, we'll conclude this morning by sharing in uh, the Lord's Supper as well. I... Uh, I really have enjoyed uh, the clear nights we've had recently. I'm not a big fan of, well, anything much over 85 degrees. Um, yeah, 67 is about perfect for me. So when it, when it gets up to like 97 or whatever today, I mean, that's like plus 30 over, you know, what Dave likes. Not that it's about me, but I'm just telling you what I prefer. Uh, but I love this time, this season of the year. You know, the day starts to fade away, and uh, I love gathering around a campfire, fire pit in our yard or somebody else's place, and, you know, you hear the crackle of the fire, and there's the campfire smell, right? You've got to get all the senses involved in this, and you see the flicker of the flames, and... Of course, you got to get the taste buds in this too, right? And so everybody's got a stick, and there's some delicacy at the end of a stick, whether it's a marshmallow or you know, any kind of meat on the end of a stick over a fire is good, right? Okay, wow, minority report today. Man, I better work harder. <clears throat> I just love this season of the year in doing that. And then and as the, you know, the sun sets uh, over the horizon, you just get that evening glow, and then evening turns into night. And as that happens, you start to see a star here and a star there. And if you stare long enough, uh, you can watch constellations, you know, come into, into view. And, you know, the, the darker it gets, the more stars you see. And if you have the ability to, to get away and, and out of the city and, and away from all of the light pollution, uh, you get a glimpse of a, a little bit more that's in the night sky. You can start to see that uh, some of the, the Milky Way, and you begin to feel like, wow, there's so much out there and, and the earth resides in this particular place in our galaxy. That's all cool, right? Do you, do you ever do that? Just stare at the night sky? I love doing that. Have you ever 
stared at the night sky through a high-powered set of binoculars or a telescope. When you put that piece of glass in front of your eye, it's like the night sky even explodes with more light. You see so much more with a piece of glass in front of your eye than just if you were staring at the sky with, with, with your naked eye. Things become, uh, you see more uh, stars, planets, galaxies, comets, all satellites, all sorts of things, you, you, they just explode into your view. And if you were, if you were to go through life without ever having looked through a piece of glass at the sky, you'd be totally unaware of everything that's out there. It would be there, but you just, you wouldn't know about it. You'd be ignorant to it, clueless to it. It would be there and you would just never see it. I was, I was reading a study this week. Uh, Barna Group puts out a lot of uh, good material. They, one of the things that they focus on is faith in the America, uh, faith in the world, um, church issues. Um, and, and this particular study that I was reading was about uh, Bible-minded cities in the United States. <clears throat> it was, it was a, an interesting read, but here, here's a statistic that I want you to think about just for a little bit. We live in an area that Barna says has a, a people who are 21% of the people are Bible-minded. 21%. Now, you're saying, well, what does it mean to be Bible-minded? They set the bar really low. This wasn't a high bar to get over to be considered Bible-minded. There, there were two criteria. The first criteria to be a Bible-minded person was to read the Bible once a week or more. You had to read the Bible at least one time. What we are about to do in a minute doesn't count in your, in your weekly statistic. So outside of uh, church, read the Bible once. That doesn't seem to be like a real high bar, right? The second uh, criteria to be a Bible-minded person was to profess that uh, the Bible is accurate in what it teaches. So have a, a belief that we can find things of value and help for life and faith uh, in the Bible. So read the Bible once a week uh, and profess that the Bible is accurate in its teachings. 21%. That's, I mean, if we were going up and down the rows, we could count off by fives. All right, one, two, three, four, five. Four out of five of us are not Bible-minded. To put it a different way, one out of five of us are Bible-minded. This wasn't, in case you're thinking in the back of your mind, well, they're talking about people who aren't Christians. No, this is everybody. This was a general study, including people of faith. I think looking out at you, I think we probably are a little bit better than 21%. But that statistic really bothered me. And I carry around a, a, a burden. I, I, I carry around a weight on my shoulders to help us be more Bible-minded. It occupies a huge place in my mind. It takes up a, a huge chunk of my time during the week in trying to help us learn this book, hear this book, study this book, allow this book to be the, the lens by which our lives are. Uh, we look through this lens out at life and, and other people. I think we can do better than 21%, you think? Okay, we got one. 
Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> 21.1%. <laughs> um, what I've noticed in my years as a pastor is that when we are not in the Word, our worldview shrinks. When we are not in the Word, our, everything that we have been singing about God today shrinks. It's like we go through life without blinders on. We're not, if we're not getting an accurate picture of God from what, who He says He is, then, then our view narrows. And sometimes we are at risk then, if we, if we have this small, if we put God in this tiny little box, sometimes, some people, if I get in these conversations, some people uh, determine that God is distant and remote, that He, you know, if He's the creator, that He set everything into motion and then just, you know, flew away somewhere and He's just, you know peering into his experiment and seeing how it's going. And so some people have this very aloof picture of God that he's out there and remote and not active and present in our lives. If we're not in the Word, then we're at risk of allowing that to be our picture of God. Other people, they look around at uh, the problems in the world, the hate and division and the warring, and the disease, and famine, and then and they maybe look at those general uh, societal problems, and then, and then they look into their own life, and yeah, oh, my life just isn't going so well, and this disease has, you know, just riddled my body, and my friends are having troubles in their relationships, and there's no, for, you know, all of these sorts of things, stuff that we struggle with, and some people get the view that God is somehow stirring the pot on all that, that, that these are all, that God is responsible uh, for these, that God causes this kinds of, these kinds of things in our lives. And so when we're not in the Word and getting a, uh, an accurate picture of who God is, we tend to make a God of our own imagining. And I think, no, I, I know that I want to help us think bigger than that. I, I want to tell you this morning about uh, Robert. Um, I met Robert this week. He had a, he had a need and he came uh, by the church uh, looking for some help. And uh, chatted with him one day, and uh, again the next day. As we were trying to figure out how we could uh, meet a financial need, I, in the course of conversation, I, I really am driven by learning people's stories. So I, you know, was chatting with Robert about his story, and I, you know, one question, I'm like, hey, you know, <clears throat> of all the places that you could go, what motivated you to stop here? Well, churches are supposed to help, right? I said, yeah, churches are supposed to help. Which brings the question to my mind, Robert, you know, how are, how are things with you and God? Well, I, I believe in God, but I don't think He likes me very much. Of course, <laughs> I'm curious about that. Well, tell me more about that, Robert. Why, why don't you think God likes you very much? Well, I've had problems in my life for a long time. People close to me who have, they've just struggled through life for a whole variety of reasons. And I can't imagine 
that God would just, you know, if he cares, why doesn't he come and do something about all of that? I said, you know what? Tell me more about this God that you, you say you believe in, but you have trouble with right now. And he, he went on to paint God into a box about like this big. It was distant, disconnected, uncaring, punitive. And he paused for a moment and I said, Robert, can I, can I tell you something? And he looked up and he said, I don't believe in that God either. And it maybe surprised him a little bit that a pastor would say, I don't believe in God. I said, let me tell you about the God that I know, the one who I think that we get a picture of when we open up this book, when we become Bible-minded people. Our picture of God is just immense and extravagant and magnificent. So I told him about the God who I know and have experienced. I said, you can, you can know this God. This is a God who loves you and in your darkest moments is not off at a distance looking in, but this is a God who hangs on the cross right next to you while you are suffering. He knows your pain. And he's there, maybe not to fix all of our problems, but he is there to provide grace in the moment and courage in the moment and peace and all of those attributes of God that we talk about in the moment of your darkest pain. I, I had some other people who were waiting and uh, I asked Robert if I could pray for him. So we prayed and we helped him a little bit and, and, and I went to shake his hand and <clears throat> he needed a hug. So I gave him a hug and he, he bare hugged me and he laid his head on my shoulder and he just started weeping. I think that's a good response when we're introduced to the God who we've been singing about. And this morning, I want to open the word with you. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 here in a moment. The text that I want to read is like, um, it's, like a telesc it's like a scripture telescope helping us see the immensity of God. And my initial plans were that we would look at verses 15 to 23, which is a beautiful prayer that Paul prays over the church in Ephesus. But I was just immersing myself in all of chapter 1, the way that Paul starts off this, this beautiful letter. And I was thinking, we can't just read part of it. We've got to read the whole thing. So... I want to read you two sentences. Is that okay? Two sentences for Paul is 21 verses for us. <laughs> so if you have your Bible open, if you have a little pen, you can make a little dot at the beginning of verse 3 in chapter 1 and then put another dot after verse 14, okay? In the Greek text, that's 201 words and it's one sentence. Then you can take a, make another dot uh, before verse 15, and then uh, make another dot after verse 23. That is sentence number two. Paul is, uh, God is blowing Paul's mind at this point, and he wants to share it with this church in Ephesus who needs the encouragement. They need a bigger, wider, deeper picture of God. And and God is 
filling Paul with all of who he is, and, and Paul's mind is racing so fast, he, he, can, he can't even take a breath. He takes two breaths in chapter 1. He, he's thinking so fast, he can't dip his quill pen into the ink fast enough and scratch it out. That's what it, as you read it over and over, that's kind of the sense that you get about this writing. And so, th this is chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 23. Paul writes, Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that comes from heaven. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in God's presence before the creation of the world. God destined us to be his adopted children through Jesus Christ because of his love. This was according to his goodwill and plan and to honor and his glorious grace that he has given to us freely through the Son whom he loves. We have been ransomed through his son's blood, and we have forgiveness for our failures based on his overflowing grace, which he poured over us with wisdom and understanding. God revealed his hidden design to us, which is according to his goodwill and the plan that he intended to accomplish through his son. This is what God planned for the climax of all things, to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things on earth. We have also received an inheritance in Christ. We were destined by the plan of God who accomplishes everything according to his design. We are called to be an honor to God's glory because we were the first to hope in Christ. You too heard the word of truth in Christ, which is the good news of your salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you believed in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance, which is applied toward our redemption as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. <gasps> That's one Greek sentence. Magnificent. And then he prays this. Since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, this is the reason that I don't stop giving thanks to God for you when I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation that makes God known to you. I pray that the eyes of your heart will have enough light to see what is the hope of God's call, what is the richness of God's glorious inheritance among believers, and what is the overwhelming greatness of God's power that is working among us believers. This power is conferred by the energy of God's powerful strength. God's power was at work in Christ when God raised him from the dead and sat him at God's right side in the heavens far above every ruler and authority and power and angelic power, any power that might be named not only now but in the future. God put everything under Christ's feet and made him head of everything in the church, which is his body. His body, the church, is the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, where do you begin after reading something as magnificent as that? I was thinking, uh, you know, I always try and pencil out for myself, what is the, what's the point? What is the message? If if people were to sit through the message on Sunday morning, what's like the one, maybe two things that should be carried off with us? And as I was thinking about this week, I don't, I don't want to, to ask anything of you except a focus on verse 18, which says, open the eyes of our hearts. I pray 
for us today that we would open ourselves to our that we would open ourselves to God and let him enter in that we would make enough space for him in our life that he would begin to show us to help us experience the magnitude of who he is so i was as i was thinking about that I, my whole goal today i, I just want to bless you I, I want to encourage you i want to remind you how much God loves you. I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt that God cares about you. To remind you that God is not, is, to remind you that God is on your side. He's not against you. To remind you that God is actively working for our good and for our salvation. He is not working against you that way. He is not off and aloof and passive, and He is working for your good and for your salvation. And I want to remind you that He is a present and personal God who seeks relationship with each and every one of us, that He is involved, that He is totally involved in our lives. This whole passage reminded me of um, baptism. I was thinking as we <clears throat> talk about opening the eyes of our hearts. I like how it says that, uh, that we pray that there would be enough light let in so that it would open our eyes. I mean, that's vision. We need light to be able to see things. And so I pray that God would flood, shine a big flood of light into our hearts and so that we get this picture of, of him. And I was thinking that, you know, as we do that, as we get a new or more full picture of who God is, it's it's like we're having our imaginations baptized. You know, when, when I think about baptism, I think about water, natural water baptism, whether it's immersion or sprinkling. It doesn't matter, it's water. Um, and so I think back throughout my life of experiences that I've had with with water, and so I, you know, I grew up. My childhood was on the shores of, of Lake Superior, and uh, we would go down there every summer. And it was cold. I mean, Lake Superior is ice cold, and you know what? We would just run in and swim anyway. We'd run and jump in, and and uh, we'd come up out of those waters, and whew, it would get your attention, right? Or, you know, you're playing around in the yard and you have a water fight and some have little, you know, water pistols and somebody else, you know, hey, I'm just going to go for the hose. <laughs> Crank that up and, you know, it's that first blast, you know, it gets your attention, right? You're instantly aware of all of your surroundings and, you know, it, water, when, when we immerse ourselves in it, it's... it's uh, it has this cleansing effect, a freshening effect. And so when we think about opening the eyes of our heart, I, I just see this picture of our imaginations just getting dunked into these icy cold waters and, and we come up uh, into this uh, and we live into this resurrected life in Jesus. And as we are immersed in the flowing waters of of resurrection, we, we come up cleansed. We, we come up with our senses tingling and our imaginations are refreshed and we begin to see things that we have never seen before. We open the eyes of our hearts and we allow God to do work in our lives and, and baptize our thoughts so that we see things that he wants us to see that maybe we have just been walking by. There's a few things that I noticed about, about our passage. 
And I think what we're going to have time for this morning is to look at seven, seven verbs. And uh, I think these are verbs that we absolutely need to hear. They're all found in verses 3 through 14. And uh, Paul is writing this letter not to an individual. He's writing this letter to a church. We talked about this last week that that we first have to understand the words of Paul in the context of he is speaking these things to the church. The church is the fullness of Christ, if you heard that in our text this morning. And so collectively we are here together, and these words are for all of us to figure out how do we do this in the context of community. But there's also, you know, as Scripture goes, there's also a personal application, and so I would ask you to weigh both of those things. There's the seven verbs are, um, the first one that I want you to look at is in verse 3. It says, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now, if you think about God blessing, God has been blessing things from the very beginning, and what, uh, what God does you know, blessing is an action that God does. What God does comes out of who God is. And the blessing that we receive from God is really the blessing of receiving God Himself, receiving God in the person, receiving uh, the presence of God. As we think about... um, you know, Paul says uh, that we'd be blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing um, from the heavens. Sometimes we may be at risk of thinking that we'll have to wait for that blessing. Heavens, you know, that's the place where we go when, when we die. And so maybe, you know, God is giving us this blessing and he's pointing us forward to that time when we will be blessed with the blessings of heaven. But Paul is saying, no, it, it, it happens in the present. These are things we don't have to wait for that for some future time. These are, this is a blessing that God gives us now, today, and that's the blessing of His presence. God has blessed you. He's blessed you. He's blessed us, our church, the global church. He has blessed us in Christ Second verb, uh, if you're writing these down, verse 4 says God chose. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless. You know, we've talked about being chosen before. Oftentimes we use the metaphor. Remember, you know, you line up along the fence and you're in elementary school and you choose up sides for a team. In, In that scenario, somebody's always chosen last or not chosen at all. And so when you're not chosen for something, there's a, there's a sense of being worthless that goes along with that. Maybe you're not chosen for the team. Maybe you were not selected for the job. Maybe... Uh, Somebody else was chosen ahead of you for a promotion or an award, or uh, maybe the person that you really liked chose somebody else. All of these sorts of things, um, human nature is to think then that, wow, I must, I must not be worth anything. And when we go down that path, It can lead to a lot of of misery. But I want to tell you this morning, God's Word says that God chose us in Christ with God. Everyone is chosen. Everyone is chosen. God... God doesn't leave anybody out in this sentence. God chooses you. You are chosen by God in Christ. 
You are worth something to God. You are worth Jesus dying on the cross to save and to forgive. God chooses you, chooses us. You're not chosen because you're the prettiest or the smartest or that you are the best at something. God chooses you simply because God loves you and he cares about you. Now, as God's created beings, he has chosen all of us. His desire is everybody would be in relationship with him. And he has given us the gift of choice back. And so we go through this life and we can know by opening this word that God chooses you. But you have to make the choice back to God. The third verb as we are moving forward here is found in verse 5. It says, God destined us to be his adopted children through Jesus. God destined. Now, both chose and destined, they kind of, destined, they kind of suggest this sense of uh, intentionality um, that life is not uh, random. Uh, it's interesting, the word, the Greek word for destine uh, comes from the noun, which is boundary. And so if you turn that into its verbal form, and if you turn it into a verb, it would literally mean to set a limit, to mark a boundary, to draw a perimeter around something. And so God lines out what it means for us to live as one of his children. God destined us to be his adopted children, and so he gives us a picture of what that looks like through his word. Now, this word destined also carries with it um, this sense of, you hear it in it, is the sense of destination. And if we think about that, let that rattle around for a little bit, you will come to the point where you say, God is our destination. That's how he set it up. He set the world into motion. He has chosen all of us. He wants to be the destination for every single person. God destined us to be his adopted children. He wired into our DNA uh, a homing beacon. And the homing beacon is God himself. He is our destination. Now, we can't move on from here because throughout time, texts like this have been steered maybe in an unhelpful, unhealthy direction. Some people will read into this passage and they'll, they'll flatten out the meaning of this word and they'll come to this uh, place where when they hear the word destined, in some translations it might even say predestined, they'll come to this conclusion um, that God has already figure out, figured out every detail of our lives. And so he's written the script and set it into motion. And so we're just kind of like robots who are meandering through life following this script that's in place. And, uh, and so we're just like these robots going through life. I don't think, I don't think, that's not my opinion of what Paul is saying here. Um, some people will take that one step further and they will suggest that God has already predetermined your eternal fate, heaven or hell. So when you're born, it's already figured out. That's how some people would read this word destined, God destined, he predestined us. Again, I don't believe that's what Paul is saying. I don't think um, that's what Paul means. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. I think Paul is using this text to... Uh, rescue us from going through life and thinking that it's all impersonal. 
that faith is just what it will be, I think Paul writes this to help us get this huge picture of God, and he's then, he, then he brings it in, and he says, and God wants to be in a relationship with you. God is this personal God. God is your destination. God chose, God destined, and we have the choice to enter into relationship with him. All right, the next verb, verse 6. Paul's talking about grace that he has given us freely, or bestowed is another way to say that. And this verb only shows up two times in the whole of the New Testament. Uh, Luke uses this word once when he tells us about the angel uh, Gabriel uh, approaching Mary, and, and he says, greetings, favored one. Favored one there um, is the same word that Paul uses in, in our text here. And Paul uses the word to express God's action of bestowing or giving us his grace. Um, it's kind of hard to describe the extravagance of this con uh, concept in a language that is accurate, that is big enough, that is large enough for us to grab. God gives grace. He favors us. He finds pleasure in us. He delights in giving what we could never imagine or guess. He lovingly gives us what we really don't deserve, and that's his grace and forgiveness. The next verb, uh, the fifth one, is found in verse 8. It says, he poured over us, uh, or he lavished over us with wisdom and understanding. God doesn't give you just a little bit of grace, a sprinkle here and a sprinkle there. Uh, God lavishes his grace upon us. A couple places the Gospels tell about uh, somebody coming to Jesus and anointing him. One, one is in John 12, I think. Mary, she gets that expensive jar of perfume, and she cracks it open, and she pours out the whole thing on Jesus. And some people had a fit that she would do that. And Jesus says, no, 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 she's doing the right thing. That that gives us a picture of how God lavishes, how God pours his grace on us. He doesn't leave anything in the container. He pours it all out for us. If you think about it in terms of, you know, a uh, sporting metaphor, you could, you, if you watch uh, football and particularly playoff games and, and uh, you know, it's maybe an elimination game and, and one team is, has all but won the game and the Seconds are winding on the clock, and, and the camera always goes to the sideline, right? And there's a few players who have gone over, and they've gotten that big Gatorade cooler. And they, they grab that, and they, you know, they try and sneak up behind their... The coach knows what's happening. Maybe not the moment, but he knows it's coming. But they get this Gatorade canary, and they come up behind the coach, and do they just go and do a little drop of that Gatorade over his head? No. It's a huge splash. They don't leave anything in that cooler. That's how God pours grace over you. Jesus didn't just get a little cut on his arm and squirt out a few drops of blood and then put a Band-Aid on it. Jesus stretched out his arms and he poured out all his blood so that you could be forgiven of your sins. That's how God lavishes grace upon us. He's not stingy. He gives it all to us. Verb number six, God revealed his hidden design to us. He revealed, he made known his plan to us. He pours out his grace uh, with wisdom and understanding, God reveals this plan to us, and we don't have to go around searching and deciphering a bunch of clues. He, he makes it plain to us, and 
as we start living a life in Christ and we start reading the Word and following along with us and we, when we open the eyes of our heart to see God in new and greater ways, that blessing of wisdom comes along with it because as we live life, He helps us understand and the last verb is found in verse 10. It says, God's plan is to bring together, to gather up, you could say, all things in Christ. That's a pretty big statement. God's plan is to bring together everything in Christ. Paul invites us to imagine a new reality in which heaven and earth are gathered under the rule of, of Jesus. Now, if we're thinking about togetherness, it's kind of a fragile concept in our society. Uh, you could even say that uh, togetherness is an, an endangered species. We are a people who have become very quick to take offense. We mark our territory with fences, and we put up these walls of division, uh, and, and so therefore we are fracturing relationships left and right, and so the idea of coming together on anything is really challenging for us. And the, the shattering of togetherness, I mean, really goes all the way back to the beginning pages of our Bible in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to go their own way and thus they fractured this relationship with God and it's been perpetuating uh, ever since. And, and yet, God's plan is to bring it all together in His Son, Jesus. And God's specialty is tearing down walls. Uh, he is a specialist at um, removing hostility f between people and um, because we are called into his family because he chose us uh, to be his adopted children well he calls us into that we are agents of reconciliation the church is to is to be the place where people could look at and say wow we can live together under Christ. We don't have to have hostility between us. You, are, as a chosen follower of God, are an agent of His unity and reconciliation as He brings everything together. These are all things that God does. Um, notice that None of those verbs require anything of us. Those are verbs that talk about God's activity. He calls us into his work, but there's no, these verbs didn't give us uh, any homework assignments. They didn't write down any new laws for us to follow. These are things that God does. Um, God provides everything that we need to grow up to maturity in Christ. Christianity is not a do-it-yourself project. Christianity, making you a saint, making you a mature believer, uh, a mature follower of Jesus, that's God's work done by the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, you have to be a willing participant. And you are intimately involved in the process, but it's, it's God's work. And he asks us to open up the eyes of our hearts so that we can get a picture of what that looks like and who he is. You know, there's so much more in this passage. I'd love to share it with you. But we're going to need to move on in our, in our service. Um, Paul wants us as we open the eyes of our heart, he wants us to know that is, so that we can find hope that is found in God. He wants you to know 
that you can be assured of your salvation as you live for Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of people who venture through life and they have questions about whether, whether they're forgiven or not or whether that God loves them. And Paul wants you to know without a shadow of a doubt that God loves you and will forgive you. Find the hope in that. And we open our hearts so we can see the riches of his glorious inheritance. And we open our hearts so we can see the measurable greatness of his power, which is enacted. uh, uh, God's power is visible and evident to us in Christ. I mean, verses 20 through 22 tell the story. He raised Jesus from the dead. He seated him at his right hand. He put all things under his feet, and he made him head over all things for the church. And so as we close this portion of our worship service, I really desire for you, for us, I want you to live into the fullness of God instead of the smallness of sin. Sin shrinks our worldview. Sin shrinks our view of God. I want us to be Bible-minded people so we read passages like this and the blinders just fall off and we get this picture of God and what he has done for us and is doing for us. I want you to experience the vitality and joy of life in God's grace and forgiveness for you instead of the cold, silent death of sin. I want us to open the eyes of our heart. Lord, we need your help in doing that. I want God to baptize our imaginations today. And we would come up out of those cold, icy, flowing waters of the baptism of, and live into this resurrected life in Jesus. I want him to give us a fresh vision of who he is today. As Paul ended, he said, to the praise of God's glory, the people of God said, mm. Amen.